welcome again to the Southwest Climate Podcast, Mike Crimmins. Zach, good to see you. It's April, right? We apologize. We have failed our few listeners, which we really appreciate. It should be April. We were supposed to do one in April because our last one was March 11th. And, and we had a lot to talk about each month, but it was just really challenging to, uh, to schedule. So here we are. We got busy, but we, we're back. You, you kind of look all googly-eyed. I think it's maybe the monsoon dew point or some copious amounts of coffee. But it's my good. hair frizzing out with the, with the dew point going up here. This is the best, uh, best time to do the podcast. So I'm really excited. Uh, I've missed the, the best day of, of my month, usually the last two months. So again, I know I've missed you guys too. So I'm excited. Excited we're back. We got a lot to talk about. Just want to shout out to a number of people who are like, where is Mike Crimmins in the podcast? Which I took as a, as a compliment because Mike, uh, I like listening to you as well. No, no. They said, they said your name first. I know. Most I know. of those emails. Yeah, no, no. It was really great to hear people wondering what's going on. And, uh, you know, last time I, I do remember this, which I, I don't think we're actually going to get to, which is we, we ended the, the March 11th podcast being like, okay, and in April, let's, let's do a deep dive into the snowpack situation. So, <laughs> but that's like, we got too much to cover and we don't want to make this like a four hour special. Yeah. So I think we're just going to punt on that, but maybe we'll talk a little bit about it later. We'll see how it goes. Maybe we could just say that there wasn't much and it went away fast. So <laughs> okay. I think we, we just took care of April. <laughs> but thanks for that. All right, Mike, I want to start this just with the question. Cause I was, uh, you know, nobody really cares about me until the monsoon season comes around and then I get some media requests. So, which is, which is kind of funny, but I got this cool question on, which I'm sure you've thought about, and I just want to get your take. So what do you say when somebody says, you know, what's, what's unique about the Southwest climate? So what's your take on that? Yeah, I got a canned answer because I, I say this all the time when I, you know, do presentations and, and teach around the region. And it's the thing that I love about Southwest is that we've got a seasonal climate. We, we transition between a very unique winter season where the weather is really interesting and specific to the Southwest. And, it, and it's shared by a lot of the, the rest of the Western U.S., but we have kind of our own sort of flavor and take on it. And then we've got these intervening dry seasons where it just doesn't rain, right? And that's what we just went through in the spring. La Nina was definitely part of that. But we do, you know, Mays are not wet here, and that's pretty reliable. Sometimes they can be wet. And then we have this real stark transition into the monsoon season, which is completely different. So it's it's gets us to completely think about weather and climate differently. And you and I have been doing this now for over a decade, and we've kind of gone through that ebb and flow and that pulse of thinking about winter climate and then, you know, reshuffling our brains as we get into the monsoon and we think about monsoon for a couple months and then we've got to actually think about how that's going to transition back into a weather pattern. And that, you don't, you just don't see that, you know, like Florida doesn't really have that. The Pacific Northwest doesn't have that. The Midwest where I grew up doesn't have that. So I think that that's the really cool thing about the, the South, about Southwest climate. So when I was Asked that question. I gave a, uh, a, a similar answer. I, I, my answer was, it was a monsoon interview. So I, I highlighted the monsoon as being a really unique uh, feature. And, and then I also talked about the number of different hazards, climate related hazards that the Southwest experiences. And after the, uh, the conversation, I started thinking about that response a little bit differently. And up until the conversation, like June would have been, it's an easy month to, vil, uh, to villainize. I've kind of said this before that it's my least favorite month. But then I was like, you know, like June is this special month, actually. And I started thinking about June differently, right? Like you start talking about the monsoon, you start anticipating the monsoon. So even though June doesn't bring the monsoon for the most part, maybe just the tail end if we're lucky it's still very much present in, yeah. in consciousness, right? But you also have like the apex of the fire season, yep. right? You also have drought becomes a very entrenched and lingering part of, of, of the Southwest just because you've evolved from a really dry period of, of the year. So drought's there. It's also the height of the heat season, right? Uh, and water, the issue, the water supply issue is, 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 you know, cause 
we know at that point what sort of peak water will will look like from from the snowpack. So June is like the collision of all these things. Yeah, it's cool. It's such a cool take because it, it's a dramatic month. It doesn't look kind of look like it on paper or even maybe it does feel like it though. And I think that like just the way you talked about it is if we think back the last couple of Junes, you know, we had large fires burning across Arizona and we don't this year, but New Mexico does. And so, you know, it's like you said, that kind of, is it going to be, is it going to be us? Is it going to be somewhere else with that fire season? And then when does the Father's Day heat wave show up, right? <laughs> is it going to be on Father's Day? Is it going to be two weeks before? Is it going to be the week after? And we're, we're already seeing those kind of conditions set up across the Southwest. And at the same time, it's in training a little bit of moisture. So we're seeing the humidity go up. So yeah, it is very dramatic. That's a really good point. So June has a high misery index, but it's also a, a, a fantastic month to, to, to talk about. So uh, absolutely. That, it's a top of the roller coaster for sure. That's my new, my new perspective on June. So welcome June. All right. So we got a, a bunch to cover, Mike. So here's the outline. Let me know what you think. We can do the recap of the winter, you know, where did the, the, the winter rainfall and, and temperature rank? And, you know, just a hint to people that already know this, but it's pretty darn low, pretty darn dry. In other words, that sort of take on June sort of inspired a hazard report. So let's, uh, let's unpack the, the fire, let's unpack drought, heat and whatnot. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the hazards and then Let's get ready to rumble! Yeah! <laughs> Your podcasting soundboarding is, is unmet and unmatched. I know, this is a hack job. <laughs> it was pretty... <laughs> um, I, I thought that was funny, though. Let's talk about the monsoon. We got... Yes, we, that's right. Back. There's some good things to talk about, even a hint. Maybe the monsoon might 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 start early. I kind of want to know if this is going to be a monsoon that, you know, might go streaking down I-10 again like he did two years ago. So we'll, we'll talk about that. And then finally, just a, a quick note to those people that don't make it to the end, but we are running back the monsoon fantasy forecast game. Um, so I'll be sending out emails. We're we'll doing this on social media. We got some really cool prizes, um, better prizes this year. Last year we gave out uh, weather stations, two really cool weather stations, but uh, didn't realize that not everybody that that played would would know what to do with them. <laughs> so this year we've got Amazon gift cards, which I think can resonate with everybody. Where um, you can buy your weather station. I mean, that's what I would do. So that's, that's true. For those that want a weather station, buy it there. Or, you know, for me, you can buy diapers. <laughs> or uh, actually, Not for you, though. You might yeah, have to clarify a little bit. Okay, good. Yeah, I'll have my, my wife play. <laughs> no, family members can't win either. So uh, we'll, we'll go over that at the end. So, so stick around. All right. So, so Mike, winter recap. Um, let me give the big picture and then turn it over to you to sort of tell us what the heck happened. So looking at the totality uh, of the winter from November through May, uh, looking at precipitation across the Southwest, pretty bleak pic picture. In fact, pretty bleak, you know, from the, from the Rockies West with the exception of, you know, parts of the Pacific Northwest, right? So in Arizona, we're in the bottom tercile, we're in the bottom 33rd percentile except for a few small patches here and there in the, in, in the Four Corners region. But I'm not even sure like there's great data coverage up there. So I'm not even sure how much I believe, believe that, or maybe there's just like a, a, a one anomalous value. But anyway, like the, by and large, the picture is below the 33rd percentile for most of Arizona and actually for New Mexico as well. And even like far Eastern New Mexico, Northeastern New Mexico experience uh, its record driest seven month period. So dry, not a lot of uh, uh, rainfall snowpack, probably to nobody's surprise. If you look at temperature, uh, it's been much above average over that same, same period of time. So somewhere in the vicinity of, depending on where you are, two to five degrees, two to four degrees uh, above, above average for pretty much, actually, if you, if you want to look at the entire U.S., like you have to go north of like Wyoming, and, and Idaho, and then, you know, from central Oregon north, basically to, to get sort of average temperatures everywhere else in, in, in the U S like the, the, the Southern, let's say two thirds of the U S is all much above average with 
obviously the southwestern U.S. being, like I just said, two to two to four degrees for the for the most part. So in my mind, Mike, like this sort of picture, particularly the the rainfall, but also the temperature, can be explained by one of three things, and I'm curious which one. So it's either like we had we had few southeastern moving storms that dipped into our region, so we had fewer than what we normally would expect. Or we had kind of what we would expect or even more, but those storms just didn't tap into a subtropical moisture source. And so we didn't get rain despite having the the storms move in or some combination of both. So more or less, which one was it? I think it was C. I think it was a little, it was a combination of of both. So this, this winter, and it really extends last fall into through the rest of the spring, just kind of you pointed out was our second La Nina winter. And we have seen very similar precipitation totals to the previous cool season of uh, 2020, 2021. And so I don't think it's really been a surprise that this has been below average. And I think as you kind of pointed out, it's been a mixed bag. This winter, this fall, winter, and into spring has been just slightly wetter than the previous year. But, just, but not enough really, I think, to make much difference. So I think we can kind of think of these as very, very similar, two really poor years in a row. I think you can kind of look back, and if you look at, back at a lot of the summaries and the discussions, we have La Nina fi- fingerprints over both of these two years in a row. We have seen pretty decent uh, troughing over the West you know, from time to time. You know, so it wasn't as though we were just baking under a ridge like we've seen in past La Nina winters, you know, if you think about like 2017, 2018, very, very warm, very long dry spells in that particular year, strong ridge of high pressure over the Western US. We were kind of up and down, right? But when we would get these systems come through, they didn't have a lot of moisture associated with them and they wouldn't do a lot. And, you know, thinking about like Arizona, our our best run at precip since November was in December. And the previous year, our best run of wet conditions was in January. So that it's in, if you line up the, you know, the plots of cumulative precip for a couple of the cities, they look really similar, you know, for Tucson in particular, they look really similar from 2020, 2021 in that cool season and the same for this, this past year. Yeah. So just to uh, put some numbers to that. So two back-to-back very dry winters, like you said, in a row, 20, 21, uh, so two years ago, was a little bit drier. At this day in 2021, we had like 1.5 inches in Tucson. We currently are at two inches. Yeah. The average is five. Yeah. So right now, this year in Tucson, it's about 40% of average, with which ranks in its record at the Tucson International Airport, fifth driest. So last year was, you know, top five too. This year's top five. As, as well. Phoenix is about 50% of average this year. It's 11th driest uh, in its record. Flagstaff was a big winner at about, it's, it's running at about 70% of average. Uh, and that's the 20, 21st driest. Albuquerque, about 28% of average, fourth driest on record. And Las Cruces, about 50% of average and, and 23rd, 23rd driest. So yeah, not very good. And like you said, like our, our sort of main wet period this year was end of December, correct? Yeah. So it was a little different for New Mexico, New Mexico, kind of, if we, you know, looking at Albuquerque's data right now, they've, they've had evenly paced, but very, very small events. They had a a decent run with some precipitation in the middle of um, March. That was one of those troughing events that actually was able to pick up a little bit of moisture. We have had a pretty active weather pattern across the West all fall, winter, and spring, but uh, it's not been particularly effective at drawing up much moisture and creating a lot of precip for the Southwest. It's been really effective at creating windy conditions, though, once we got into to April and May. Does that have to do with the strength of the low that's moving down? Yeah, and it's it's going to be the the pressure gradient between the low itself and then the high pressure system to the south. By the end of December, in both Tucson and Phoenix, we basically had close to ninety percent of what, maybe even more of what we currently have now. So since from from January, February, March, April, May into June, I mean, we just a, a couple 
maybe a quarter of an, an, an inch of rainfall in Tucson and slightly more in, in, in Phoenix. So that's a pretty protracted period. And we'll get to this because it, it help, has helped set the stage for higher risk for fire, which hasn't actually played out in Arizona, but certainly has in, uh, in New Mexico, we'll, yeah. which, which we'll talk about. So, yeah. So anything else with uh, sort of where we are in terms of the synoptic weather system? I mean, you, like you said, like not, not really different than maybe we would have expected given that we were sort of in a La Nina pattern, but you know, La Nina just don't always unfold as, as we think they're going to, but this one certainly, certainly did. They don't always look exactly the same with the sub-seasonal variability. You know, this, this one had its own kind of maybe a little bit different flavor to it. And I, what stands out to me is there's some really good blog posts on climate.gov with the Enso blog that was talking about the Pacific North America pattern, which is just one of those, it's a, it's an easy shorthanded way to look at the broad pattern um, that'll emerge, you know, looking at the waves in the jet streams. And so we had some protracted periods of a negative PNA, which are tend to be a slightly more frequent during La Nina uh, winters and springs. And those are where you get that trough of, of low pressure that will kind of park off the West coast or come inland. And they can, if they've got some moisture to the south, drag it in, but they'll often just be kind of cool and windy. And I think that that was, that was really part of our whole thing that we dealt with, with the really windy conditions setting up in April and May across the Southwest. And it looked to me, it was really interesting because it looked really, really similar for a while there to 2011. And 2011 was that crazy windy year where we had huge wildfires across the Southwest, including Wallow. Horseshoe 2 in Southeast Arizona, and then um, the big fires that burned down large swaths of like Los Alamos, the, not, not Los Alamos, the town, but the big ones up near Santa Fe in 2011, in that spring of 2011. What did 2011 look like in terms of rainfall? Do you have that handy? Like in terms no, of the rainfall pattern? It was another La Nina winter. And remember, that was kind of part of the double dip La Nina too. So it was like a couple of La Nina winters in a row. So that was the second one? Uh, I think it was actually the first of two at that point, if I'm getting that, that right. Cause 2009, 2010 was actually an El Nino winter and then 10, 11, I'm not, I can't quite remember, but I know 11, 12 was, we were getting into that, the double La Nina winters, uh, stacking up. And so we were into drought conditions. Then there was some antecedent dryness. I don't know if it was quite as dry as what we've actually even seen this, this, uh, last couple of winters, but my guess is there's data on the internet that we could actually probably look at. And uh... <laughs> is it characteristic that you have these long sort of the, 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 the end of the season, if you will, or, you know, from the middle to the end of the, of the winter as being fairly dry. Like, so we talked about last year, the main rainfall pulse came in, in at the end of January and this year it pretty much came at the end of December. And then you've got these like, three, four months worth of pretty much rainless conditions or snowless conditions as well. So, I mean, is that pretty characteristic of, of these ENSOs, uh, sorry, of these La Ninas, or is it really sort of highly variable? The bigger pattern is just that like at the end of the season, it, the, the totals sort of come in below average. It depends because last winter, I know actually last spring, do you remember last spring, it actually started to rain and snow in Northern New Mexico in May. And that was a La Nina situation too. So it's like, it's not super consistent. Like, you know, climatologically, what we have is typically the, that winter season in the Southwest is, is it can start as early as November and that, and we can start to get you know, mid-latitude storms drop into the region and um, bring some precipitation. Sometimes they can interact with subtropical moisture and, you know, do some good work down here. That can continue to persist through December, January. February, March can, can be really busy months with sort of the subtropical um, interactions. You know, like we get a split level, a split jet pattern, and that can bring in a lot of precipitation for Arizona and New Mexico, sometimes separately. And then we start to see the, the winter storm track recede north into April and May. And so climatologically, we're usually, it's a little harder. We're harder pressed to get productive storms. So, you know, one of the, the things about some of the climate change studies have kind of talked about the, the whole season sort of shrinking for the Southwest too, right? So the storms may come later, maybe more December, and they're going to stop sooner 
in March and maybe even retreat earlier than that. And so I, there's probably an, uh, an ENSO interaction there with some La Nina, but it's not consistent. And the trend certainly has been that Aprils in particular have gotten drier over time with that progression of the jet stream north. Got it. Woohoo, climate change. Yay, no. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's, uh, that's sarcasm. So, yes, sarcasm, please. <laughs> it is super problematic. Yeah, it's problematic for one of the things that we should talk about, which is, so let's move on. Let's think about like, uh, let's talk a little bit about sort of the confluence of all of these hazards in, in June and late late spring. I think one of the big stories this spring and summer has been the fire season in, in New Mexico in particular, but like there's a broader question, right? Like, which is both Arizona and New Mexico have experienced pretty dry conditions like we talked about warmer than average conditions, they haven't received, let's see here, you know, Albuquerque, actually, if I'm looking at Albuquerque, like it did receive slightly more rainfall, like later in the season, like there's a little bit like a quarter of an inch or so in Albuquerque in mid-March, which might've helped. But then again, New Mexico has been the one that's been the bullseye. It's fire season. It's been historic, historically bad. In fact, Two fires that are still ongoing, but I think largely contained now. The Calf Canyon fire and the Hermit's Peak fire up in northern New Mexico, that's the largest on record, burning over 300,000 acres. And then there's the Black Fire, which is in the Gila uh, Forest, which is in south uh, southwestern uh, New Mexico. It's burned close to 300,000 acres. So, so both of those now are number one and number two historically for the, the, the largest fires on, on record, which, you know, goes back to 1990. So not, not a huge record, but important nonetheless. So, so New Mexico has been the bullseye. Arizona, oddly, uh, has been a much less vigorous fire season, thankfully. So I guess the question, Mike, is what gives, is there any rhyme or reason to this sort of pattern or, 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 or not so much? I don't know. I'm kind of puzzling over it too. The fires in New Mexico, you know, their biggest progression was, was weather driven, right? I mean, they really had trouble. They had strong resistance to control as, as kind of said in the fire community, meaning that there were persistent days with extensive fire periods, meaning that the fires were burning through the night. So they would resist control at night and they were wind driven. And that, that lasted for weeks, right? So that was part of the windy conditions in April and May that have largely subsided because the monsoon ridge is now building up into the Southwest. And so as that does, the windy conditions are to the North now, and that pressure gradient is to the the North. So, I mean, Arizona saw similar conditions. The tunnel fire that that occurred in near outside of Flagstaff in April, that, that, that fire burned from its point of origin just raced to the Northeast without, you know, any real safe attempt at control. And then it just kind of burned itself out because it ran, ran out of fuel. It ran into the desert. We've had a lot of other fires. We've had grass fires that have quickly burned large areas and then were able to be controlled. And then we've had other fires that they've been able to kind of jump on really quickly and extinguish. So like there's been really pretty incredible firefighting. I mean, I think there's been incredible firefighting in New Mexico too, but it just seems like they're working with just slightly more extreme conditions as far as the wind and probably the background dryness of fuels is even greater there than is in Arizona. Maybe that's the difference. I don't know. Maybe Arizona just got lucky this year and didn't have that right ignition at that right spot that was going to make, you know, one of these fires grow to hundred thousand acres. Yeah. So let me, for the people that like numbers, let me put some numbers to uh, both Arizona and New Mexico. So, so the data that I'm looking from is for it's the Southwest Coordination Center, but what's the overarching agency that can, do you, do you know offhand? NIFS? Yeah. So Southwest Coordination Center is a geographic area coordination center. So they're called a YAC and they're underneath NIFSI, which is a national interagency fire center. Okay. So this is from NIFSI pertaining to the Southwest region. And it's only looking at both Arizona and New Mexico or their Southwest region combined. It's looking like 
that the total acres burn will be the third highest on, on its record, which goes back to 1990. So where we stand right now for Arizona is about 52,000 acres burned. I think it's medium median is somewhere in the vicinity of it. I don't have these numbers exactly, but I think I'm pretty darn close. It's probably 180,000 uh, uh, acres. So f- way below the median there. Uh, New Mexico, on the other hand, um, has burned close to 840,000 acres, largely driven by those two that I mentioned before. And its median is less than Arizona historically. So, so yeah, it's been a rough fire season for New Mexico. And I should also mention that, that the, the, the Calf Hermits Fire Complex kind of took out 350 homes. So it was quite destructive in terms of damage. And you mentioned, which I don't have the data, but also the fire, the tunnel fire up in Flagstaff, I believe, destroyed a lot of uh, property up there. So yeah, kind of a rough, rough fire season. Uh, but hopefully that we're sort of nearing, well, we still have another, could be another month right? Like it, the fire season doesn't end until the monsoon rains begin. Um, so hopefully we will get uh, some, you know, early, early moisture to help quell it. You know, that the humidity that wafted in, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, certainly probably helped contain or, 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 or uh, suppress some of the, the fire activity that's ongoing. So that was nice. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at some of the fire danger indices across the region here too. And it, it's interesting. We peaked at kind of maximum fire danger last month, largely. And that's where the daily, this is from the National Fire Danger Rating System and looking at some of their indices, but they were at all time maximum levels last month and they've, they've largely started to plateau. And that's, that is because of humidity coming in. And climatologically in Arizona, we peak at kind of maximum fire danger right about the third week of um, June. And that's just what we were talking about earlier, just the way you characterize June is you're kind of, you're building up to that. And then it's, it's released by monsoon moisture coming in. And New Mexico is a little bit different because they start to get parts of New Mexico start to get spring moisture in a little bit earlier from the Great Plains. So the Eastern side of the state can start to get humidity come in even a little bit earlier. And they um, have started to see thunderstorm activity up on parts of the Gila mountains and then parts over um, Northern New Mexico. And you're starting to see those fire danger indices come, come back down again. So I, I think we're, we're as long as the humidity continues to, to flow in and we start to get a good solid start to the monsoon, we'll be in, be in good shape. When that doesn't work is you, all you have to do is go back to 2020 to think about when that monsoon moisture doesn't show up and when your fire season is protracted. Yeah, so let me clean up a few things uh, with with the the actual data. Thanks to Ben for doing this in real time. So the tunnel fire took out thirty homes and one hundred nine structures. Wow, I had no idea that there was that many. And then the the median for Arizona over the nineteen ninety to two thousand twenty one record is one hundred sixty six thousand acres. You know, the average is close to two hundred fifty thousand acres. So you know, there's been you know a number of years with really large fires and a lot of acres burned, including like 2011, which you mentioned before was close to a million acres burned in Arizona. That looks like it was the most uh, severe on record, but just 2020, we had, you know, 900,000, a little bit more than 900,000. So, so we've had some pretty recent uh, large and intense fire seasons, New Mexico um, median, hundred, hundred thousand. And its average uh, is close to 200,000. So again, a few years with some really large fires and um, expansive and intense fires. 2011, again, while wow, 2011, both Arizona and New Mexico had, uh, New, uh, New Mexico had over a million acres burned and, and Arizona had close to a million acres burned. So. so on that point too, Zach, I'll do a little cleanup on mine. I, I think I was close. 2010, 2011 was the first La Nina year. 2011, 2012 was the second. Um, so that was the double dip was those two years. And that followed the 2009, 2010 El Nino that we had. Nice. Full value here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One other thing I wanted to talk about with fire. I'm just curious. Uh, so I was perusing the literature, came across a recent paper in Environmental Research Letters, which is a really good journal, titled Winter and Spring Climate Explains a Large Portion of the Interannual Variability and Trend 
in Western US summer fire burned area. It's a mouthful as all titles are. This is a paper that's sort of like looking at the fire areas burned and trying to like answer the question, um, what's, the, what's the climate signal in it? And, of, and, and one of the challenges of this is that, I mean, it's, it's using as its data set a period in which there's a lot of sort of fire management's going on and like uh, human ignition. So it's wrapping up all of those things, but still trying to like sort of control for these non-environmental factors and, and, and looking at um, the role of, uh, of climate. So a couple of things that I found interesting, I'm curious about your take. One is this may be not so new, but it was good for me to be reminded of it. But the paper says that a large fraction of the variability in acres burned, like 58% and even up to even, even close to 70% of the variability, depending on the different models that they use, are explained by climate conditions in the, in the previous winter and in the current spring. So what I thought was interesting was, I mean, those were pretty darn high percentages. Is that surprising at all of you that those numbers are that high? Or is that sort of, uh, no, we, we, we've known this for a long time, kind of, kind of a take? Honestly, I only skimmed the paper. I think the novel contribution that was brought out was thinking more explicitly about snow, drought, and trying to make that connection about when there's less than average snowpack in certain regions and how that's an explanatory variable. This kind of work has been going on for a long time as far as the antecedent conditions. And I was, I was actually, my, one of my dissertation papers got cited in that paper. And I built some of my work off of Tom Swetnam and Julio Bentcourt's work, which is in the Southwest, thinking about the antecedent conditions prior to fire events. Is there any sort of like relationship between the previous winter being dry and the subsequent fire season being dry? And in the Southwest, what we actually find is there's two things going on is that in uh, fuel limited areas, you need to actually grow fuels with wet conditions, and then you need to dry them out to burn them. So that's the antecedent. If you get outside of the region, and this is work that Tony Westerling had, had done about 20 years ago, and then Jeremy Littell, uh, I think is with the Forest Service or USGS, has done subsequently is then look at the antecedent conditions. And what you find is across the West, you get outside of this region is that it's different, right? Like what season needs to be dry to create the fire conditions is different. As you, and that relates just the background climatology of the particular locations. I think it's, it's fairly straightforward in some respects is that, you know, a lot of the fuel danger metrics are on fuel condition. And what we mean by that is how much moisture is in it. So if it's droughty in a region that has lots of fuel, you dry it out, you can subsequently increase fire risk. There are other studies though that suggest that another really important factor that drives the extent and the severity is actually the fire weather conditions that occur with in, in that's consistent with the antecedent conditions as well, right? So you can have extremely damaging large fire growth without having those antecedent conditions. And it was interesting, you brought up 2011, we thought about the wall of fire. The wall of fire that winter was actually near average to wet for parts of Arizona, even across the rim. And there was a little bit of a dry signal there. But you remember the previous year was 2009, 2010, which was very wet. And it was record snow in Flagstaff and along the Mogan Rim. The wall of fire was largely wind driven. If you remember those crazy epic winds that was driven. So that was somewhere it didn't really work out quite that well. And then the Rodeo Chetuskai fires on the other extreme, which was record long, hot conditions, dry spell. And the Rodeo Chetuskai fire had very little wind associated with it, but um, grew so hot, it started to build its own weather and had all of those pyro, you know, cumulus clouds that would build up and, the, and then collapse and then throw wind off in every direction and kind of grew to large size because of antecedent fuel conditions. So yeah, this paper I, I think is, it's similar to previous studies. I think that that contribution and maybe the snow interaction is there as well, but I, it's, it's still, there's still a lot going on that happens in and in every fire season. That's this combination of antecedent conditions and concurrent conditions that leaves you with the ultimate outcome of that season. 
Right. That that's good. I want to pick up on that. It says that the relationships between burned area and pre-fire climate and snow drought variability reveals that the majority of the fire climate relationships can be explained through climatic preconditioning and it and goes on to say that it sort of reinforces the idea that you know warmer and drier leads to or can contribute to more fire acres burn but that there's a bunch of other stuff that's that's part of this and this is where like the 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 one sentence that i thought was like really instructive cuz you know like people pick up on these studies in the mainstream media it's an immediate pivot toward climate change and the impacts of of of, of climate change obviously but there's an i think that there's an important line in here and and that line uh, um it says future long term projections over the next century based on climate fire statistical relationships prevented in this study should be interpreted as changes in climate's contribution to fire hazard rather than predictions of total area burn and i think that that that's important so they've got like like really good statistical model like pretty darn like the variance explained is is pretty darn high like i mentioned before but this idea of fire hazard rather than predictions of total area burn because it sort of opens the door for the fact that there's other things going on but more importantly for me that 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 there's a role for mitigation and thinking about fire and in its role in the landscape in a more sort of environmentally natural way yeah. can do a lot of mitigation so we're not locked into this and this is where i think that the 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 mainstream media sort of portrayal you know there was even a, like a recent article in new york times on new mexico's fire season that could have done this a little bit better but it's portrayal of of like we're locked in like yeah like warm warmer conditions in the future like definitely like precondition the, the area to have higher risk and higher hazard but there's ways to mitigate that through being you know more environmentally well, whatever intelligent maybe is the right word but managing fire in a, in a, in a, in a different way that's yeah. a lot but I, I think that that's an important nuance it is so complex too because we got legacy of fire suppression and changes in fuel conditions, as well as the climate changing on top of it, as well as an enterprise of wildfire fighting, which is really critical and important and is kind of interacting with these different things as well, right? And so, you know, you, you can do all these thought exercises with like this current season in New Mexico, which unfortunately the, that those large complexes actually had ties back to fuel mitigation activities, right? So prescribed fires that were either lost or a burn pile that re-erupted in the spring, you know, so is there a climate change aspect to that? There could be, you know, it could be because of some change in fuel condition or the expectation that that burn pile would have been extinguished. Could have been, it could have been La Nina, it could have been the interaction of warmer temperatures and La Nina drought conditions. Then you've got the wind of the spring, which was probably more connected with the La Nina pattern and that PNA pattern similar to the 2011 that made a lot of these fires resistant to control. So it's really complicated, right? I mean, I think that that's, that's the real challenge is since it's such, we're so intertwined with this from a management perspective that, you know, our, what we're going to do into the future is absolutely recognize that, you know, warmer temperatures are changing fuel conditions and changing fuel assemblages on the ground, but we also have legacy of suppression. So fuel treatments still do matter and they, they will matter into the future. And um, the, that wildfire fighting environment is changing as well. And so those warmer conditions can make fires, and this is what you've heard from firefighters, do these fires are harder to control and become more dangerous. So it's, it's kind of the interplay, I think, of both and not simply one or the other. Great. So there's only one other thing that I, I just want to mention, then we'll, we'll move on. But the, there's also a cool figure in the paper that breaks down sort of area burned by different sort of elevations and different forested types, like non-forested areas and forested areas, and, and shows the trends, like linear trends over, over time. And, and, and they're all slightly increasing, some more than others. Uh, but that's kind of a just a cool data point. I mean, they they they're they're also trying to predict that. So they showed their predictions, which again is where the uh, those number the 
the variance explained numbers that I mentioned before come from, but there's there's actual data in here too, uh, real data. So so anything? Uh, I think we can move. We should move on from fire. Let's maybe 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 hit the 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 drought report just really quickly. See if there's anything that you want to say there. But just to note, looking at the U.S. drought monitor, sort of we came into the the winter season on the you know after a sort of a a pretty darn good monsoon season. So we had made up some ground, a little bit ground in, in the drought situation. You know, at that point, Arizona, I mean, as, as common over the last 20 years, uh, there's some, there's quite a bit of drought, even, you know, in November, you know, uh, most of Arizona was, was at least uh, moderately dry or, or, or more severe, but there wasn't any sort of exceptional drought and there was a few areas that was just sort of in this abnormally dry, the, the, the drought monitors, like, lowest category, if you will. I don't even think they call it a drought category, right? New Mexico was a slightly drier picture, um, some, some extreme drought in its north, northwestern corner, a little bit in Arizona too, but maybe a more, a little bit more moderate, more severe and moderate drought than, than Arizona. So that was in November, you know, fast forward to where we are right now, June 7th, pretty much half of New Mexico is in exceptional drought. The, the other half is in extreme drought. So the, the two highest categories and Arizona also descended obviously because it's, it's been dry into a, um, more severe drought conditions for the most part across its entire state. So not unexpected given the, given the rainfall and temperatures picture that we presented before, Mike, is there anything that you want to note uh, about maybe how the, the droughts evolved or, or any, anything there worth, worth pausing on? No, I mean, it's, I think you wrapped it up nicely. You know, the, the drought picture across Arizona, New Mexico is, it really came on strong. Well, it, it came on strong in 2020, after summer of 2020. Prior to 2020, when spring of 2020, parts of the Southwest actually had, had done okay with winter precipitation. And there was still some Four Corners drought that was lingering um, even from previous years, 2017, 2018. 2020 just dropped us into those really deep, dark red categories. Subsequent winter, as we talked about, was very dry. And so we were, you know, wall to wall in some of those deepest drought categories. 2021 monsoon, you know, epic wet and really in the corridor from like Phoenix to Tucson, parts of Southeast Arizona up through higher country of Arizona, uh, higher country of Arizona. Um, not as great as you went north and west and okay in New Mexico. So the drought conditions, we didn't see a lot of relief. And so it's like you said, the abnormally dry conditions only really emerged in the drought monitor map where we had that near, near record or record rainfall. Then we went right back into drought conditions with La Nina. So they've actually started to close the donut hole of the abnormally dry around central Arizona. And so, you know, we're just, we're just kind of backsliding. And so to see that open up again, we need epic monsoon rainfall to, to reach return. So, you know, last year at about this time, we were talking about how much pressure was put on the, this, the upcoming monsoon, last monsoon, because we were in a, a very sort of dry, dry situation. Um, you know, last year, June 8th, exceptional drought was probably covering half of Arizona. And like I said, like, um, very little, actually, there is a, a, a little sliver in Northwest Arizona that has exceptional drought, but it's, it's just a small part. The, the, the reverse is for New Mexico. New Mexico is in a better state last year in terms of the more extreme and exceptional droughts. And, th and this year it's, it's, it's a worse situation than last year. So I suppose we should probably have that same sort of conversation for New Mexico. We're in a little bit of a better situation for uh, for Arizona, but I, I think that sets the stage. And of course, like, obviously this relates to the fire conditions that we just talked about. So yeah, absolutely. That's right. So I guess we'll see uh, how the drought unfolds with the monsoon, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay, Mike. So moving right along the heat season, our, our, our hazards report for the heat season. I just pulled up two, two figures, courtesy of our, our good friend, Paul Inez, uh pronouncing that yeah. right. Yeah, I thank you. <laughs> National Weather Service in Phoenix, looking at the number of, of days above 100 in Phoenix and Tucson. He started doing this in 2020, which was the most on record. And uh, this year, uh, so right now for Tucson, we've experienced 14 days and that's above average. So I think it's, I'm, I'm sort of eyeballing this. Average looks like it's about 10, 
we're not close to the record. The record was uh, 19 in 1988 and, and 18 in, in uh, 2020 uh, for Tucson. So, but we're above average. And then Phoenix, 21 so far, and 2020, uh, tw- 1989 had at this time 31. That was the record. At the end of the year, 2020 again was was the year that had the most number of days above 100 in, in Phoenix at 145. Whereas Tucson, 2000, 2020 was 108. So, so yeah, so the heat season, you know, are we going to have that? You, you sort of opened this with, are we going to have that Father's Day? When is Father's Day, by the way? A uh, week from Sunday. How old is Alice now? He's two, a little over two and a half. Oh, he's, yeah, he should definitely get you something. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make sure he knows. Okay. We usually get a heat wave, right? Like yeah. the last couple of days have been pretty, pretty hot, but, you know, not the heat wave that we've had in the past. So, so what's... What's on the horizon? Do you know, Mike? Are we going to get the heat wave before the monsoon starts? Because the heat wave happens usually in June. We're under excessive heat warnings for much of much of Arizona right now. So that's through the weekend. Yeah, heat advisories and excessive heat warnings. Yeah, really wall to wall from Arizona to New Mexico coming up, and that's with this you know ridge of high pressure that's associated with the the whole monsoon ridge sort of building up over the southwest. So it's how long. The ridge persists kind of where it sets up and the intensity of it. And we're going to be under one right now, you know, for this weekend and into early next week. It looks like the weather pattern, though, is it's pretty noisy over the next couple of weeks, at least as the models are suggesting, where we've got low pressure systems still zipping across to the north of us. And whatever that what that does is it tends to flatten the ridge, push the moisture out of here and temporarily cool us down and dry us out. So we might be up and down for the next couple of weeks, which really is about the monsoon onset. You know, it's like the more that that happens, the further off you start to put that kind of solid monsoon onset on the table. All right, let's do it. Let's get ready to rumble! How does that not fire you up? That's why they put it in Space Jam. I mean... (laughs) Or like, you know, before a boxing match. Yeah, I always remember it. For, wasn't it? It was in the beginning of basketball games. And I thought I remember it in, in uh, wrestling on TV, too. Yeah, I think so. I think it's yeah. all. Yeah. But I remember it like when I used to watch boxing during the Mike Tyson era. Like I remember. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. All right. So the monsoon, it's here. Well, it's here in the sense of we're, we're now like we can. It's on the calendar. Talk, yeah. Talk about <laughs> it without like feeling like we're wishing for it to be June, uh, (laughs) something like that. All right. So last night I actually opened my radar scope app because it looked monsoony. And on that app, there were cells, there were a number of them. There was outside my, uh, my, my back door, there was a bunch of wind gusts. There was like, like dark conditions on the horizon. Like my, uh, uh, swamp cooler I had to shut off because the humidity burst up like and then you know Twitter is like ablaze with so the CPC I guess we should say this the Climate Prediction Center uh, had on their 8 to 10 and uh, 10 to 14 day forecast like painted slightly increased chances for rainfall above average rainfall in those forecast periods and you know everybody's like oh, the, the monsoon's going to start early and you know it certainly could be that way, Mike. So what, what's, what's your feeling on this? Obviously the monsoon hasn't started. It was a prelude, right? Last night, but, but where are we? It's like, what, what is the beginning of the monsoon, right? I mean, this is, this goes back to the whole dew point definition sort of arguments and using that as a convention of a, of a start. What we're seeing, I think is really promising. It's a good solid ramp up of figuring out how to get moisture from the south into <laughs> into the southwest. And so the Weather Service has been talking about this in their discussions over the last couple of weeks, how Mexico has had really good, solid kind of afternoon thunderstorm activity along the Sierra Madre. And so that's that's kind of the foundation, right, of building the whole sort of progression of the North American monsoon um, precipitation into the southwest. So it's it's not like they were falling behind. It's like they were on schedule. So we're just kind of in the queue as this whole thing progresses north. So the last couple of days, uh, the ridge was 
sloppy and kind of building over the West. There was a little bit of some upper level low pressure system activity too, which enhanced some of this too. So we, we ended up having kind of a weak surge of moisture up the Gulf of California in, in, in Arizona. So dew points, they went up, made some outflows come out of Mexico and um, created a little bit of instability. Instability is always better over the mountains. So fired off some storms. They wandered around yesterday. They did put down some really good precip in Douglas, Arizona and Sierra Vista. So right along the border, which is kind of where you expect it to start. Still really pretty early. I'm not convinced, and it certainly looks this way on the on the models, is that this is not the start. <laughs> and when I think of start, I think of like, we're at the beginning of the persistent afternoon cycle that will, and we're in the soup till we get to the end of, um, you know, the middle of September. Do you remember a couple of years ago when we were sort of fooling around with naming, like there was like an early onset or the the... I don't know if it was the onset of the monsoon, but we were calling it the too soon. Do you remember? Did we that? It? Yeah. Yeah. Was that, was that similar to what was, was, do you recall? Well, we had a couple of summers and they, they all blur together to me is that we had precip in like the first two weeks of June. And they were actually tropical storm remnants that wandered up here. So and different than, than what we just. Yeah. Had. This isn't really, it doesn't have any really, I don't think it was tropical origin. It was just, you know, kind of interaction with some, some weather features. And again, I think good solid stuff coming that was occurring in Mexico. So it, I think that's what's a little bit different is that there, there is good act, there's been good activity. It's been building north. The, the problem with June is that you're fighting still these sort of late season spring storms that are still kind of moving across the upper, the northern part of the western US, right? And what you really need to have happen is that those continue to retreat north. The trough that occurs over and over the Pacific needs to sort of retreat off to the West coast. And we need to be under a broad ridge of high pressure, four corners high, man. You know, you need that. We need to be in the upper level easterly, mid-level easterly wind flow for it to be kind of true monsoon conditions. And this last couple of days, we've had winds out of the South, Southeast, but they haven't been because of a good, you know, well-positioned high pressure system. You'd see sort of a traditional kind of monsoon flow. But there are a couple of good signs, right? Like, like you said, the rainfall in the Sierra Madre is like, yeah. I mean, quite a bit of moisture recycling is fuels the, the, the monsoon. So it's good to, to lay down some soil moisture early. So that's kind of a promising start. Like we're not quite like if one of the, the metrics for like the persistent onset of these storms is, is the uh, sea surface temperatures in the Gulf of California. And that we're kind of like not at this magical, um, uh, they're not warm enough. Um, I, I think they're, Mike, I, I, do, do you remember what this, that, that sort of paper that talked about, like sort of a, a, a threshold though? I think it was like 29C or was it? Yeah, it's, it's in the upper, the upper twenties. Yeah. I'm looking at the analysis right now and they're, they're not super warm. And, and the, the reason that's important is because you get this sort of threshold where the instability is, is uncapped and you can actually give off a lot of that moisture to the atmosphere and it's able to flow up and, it, and it's it's associated with that sort of reversal in wind where you're getting the wind to blow up the gulf of california and that kind of enhances the increases the temperature there it's kind of a mishmash right now and it's it's early it happens fairly quickly through june but it's still pretty early right. so your you know your ability to really generate good deep surges i think is somewhat limited when the, when those waters are still kind of cool but again that that will change it's just i think i'm not trying to I'm not trying to poop on anything right here. I'm just trying to say like, you don't typically get into solid monsoon conditions very early. Remember on the old dew point definitions that we used to use for Tucson, it was like June 17th was the earliest where you got into like the solid 54 degree dew point days, if that's you know useful to think about. So it's June 10th right now. Monsoon, the official monsoon season start with the weather service is June 15th. So we'll, we'll cross that next week. Then you know we should be vigilant for that, but I still expect that we're still a couple of weeks off of what we'd ex what we'd start to say like yeah, like we're in it. Well, I also think part of the optimism is like it is a similar sort of uh, tropical Pacific Ocean setting as it was last year. Like we're in this La Nina event, and there is some like lean toward like earlier onsets 
uh, during La Nina, like it's not super strong, but um, you know, it happened last year. So there's a, maybe a little bit of the La Nina, you know, glasses on at, at, at the moment with a, with a dash of, of, of wishful thinking. But of course the CPC is, is sort of forecasting in the shorter upcoming two weeks, three week periods, they are sort of tilting the odds, but interestingly, their official forecast, right. For July, August, and September, three month season is sort of a shrug. It's a sort of an equal chances forecast. So they're not, they're not indicating, but I will say this, if you do get an early onset of a monsoon in a particular region, it usually correlates with an above average rainfall season, just in part because you're, you're, you're adding a few more days of, yeah. uh, of, of rainfall to the season. So uh, maybe that, that, that bodes well, but I don't know, Mike, what's, what's your take on, on, on an early start, like, uh, or, or, I mean, I don't know if I want to put you on the spot because I, I think I know your answer, but how do you feel about this monsoon season? It's so interesting. We still don't have a ton to go on. Just like you said, the correlations are there from the past, but you know, with all correlations, the causation is a little, it's a little fuzzy. And, and, and even with that, when we kind of understand mechanism, the correlations aren't one, right? So I think, yeah, I think the La Nina, you know, from, from Chris Castro's work, you know, we, we've got some indication that La Ninas tend to favor early onset. They don't always though. And even like you said too, the La Nina summers don't, they're not wet every month all the time as well. Right. And so I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I kind of feel like we're going to have an on-time start and maybe some good solid activity through July. I'm a little bit worried about August and September. And part of this is borne out with the models, the dynamical models, which again, aren't great and can't put a lot of weight on them. They, a lot of them are interesting that they, they're not that bullish on even a wet July, you know, like there's, there's kind of a mixed bag as you were mentioning part of the podcast, that national multi-model ensemble, the NMME, which is what we look at a lot. And a lot of the forecasters, the climate prediction center are using the July, August, September forecast is actually not, it's not that rosy for Arizona and, and especially for New Mexico, Eastern New Mexico is like, they're not, they're not bullish at all. I mean, it's not rosy at all. If you look no, at- No, it's like below average, right? For the July, August, All September. of the models in this North American multi-model ensemble. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, and there is, you know, a couple US, a couple Canadian, um, NCAR, NASA, NCEP, um, GFDL, none of them actually have a- wetter signal. They all have a dry signal. This is what I find interesting. Yeah. But if you go to the international multi-model ensemble, which I, I, I don't know what they're drawing on, but obviously the European, right? The, the European models, but the international multi-model ensemble does have an uh, above average rainfall signal for the far Southeastern corner of the U S but, but, but also up through the Sierra Madre Occidental. So yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. So the IMME, the International Multimodal Ensemble, like you said, is the more optimistic. And there's recent research out too that suggests that the European Center, the ECMWF model is skillful and seasons out ahead of, of some of the major, some of the, the general characteristics of the monsoon season that can lead to above average precip. And in general, the skill of these European Center models tend to be better than the suite of the US. So we can use that as maybe like a little bit of optimism. And it's just what you said, it, it really is hugging. It's kind of a South, it's a Southern Southeast Arizona, Southern New Mexico signal that'll probably reach up through the, the high country as well because of just the way the monsoon works. So I'm kind of cautiously optimistic at this point. I was thinking about last summer too. There's, there's two events that occurred last summer that made up most of the precip, right? And it was that really strange retrograding low pressure system that happened in the third week of July happened, which is, you know, you, like we talked about it, we had seen that in 2006. So they're, they're not happening every monsoon season. They're certainly not happening every La Nina monsoon season. And it happened again in August. So it happened twice. And that was, that's what made last summer so epically wet. So what are the chances of that happening again this summer, even once? No, people, people have asked me for my forecast, right? Because that's the question that everybody wants to know. It's like, what's it yeah. going to be like? And I'm like, well, I can tell you almost to 
you know, I bet my house on it and my cat that it's not going to be as wet as last in Tucson. It won't be as wet as it was last year. So I feel pretty confident that, I mean, last year was historically wet. Um, yeah. Yeah. What did it come in? Third? Third. Or second? Yeah. No, it was third. Third. I mean, it'd be amazing. And maybe I wouldn't bet my cat. Your kid didn't go in there, right? Did I, <laughs> I didn't hear kid then cat, right? And you swapped out, <laughs> I said you cat. left kid in there and you, you took cat out. Okay. I just want to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. I bet okay. My house. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you look historically too, you know, back-to-back wet years are, are not super common as well. I, you know, 50, 1954, 1955 with Tucson were one of those was the, I think 1954 was one of the, the top three wettest years. And then 55 was actually a pretty good monsoon as well. And that actually, it was a string of La Nina years that, that was associated. So there's, there's like some, probably connection here but it's weak and it's it's because of the just the evolution of the monsoon season can be so it, it can be on the whims of some of these larger scale organizing events what we didn't get last year though that's probably m- m- maybe just by by virtue of of chance like increases the odds this year is is we didn't get much uh decaying remnant tropical storms in uh september yeah. And we didn't, we didn't last year. I, we haven't for several years now. And it, it's largely been because of La Nina. I mean, like the, the outlook for the East Pacific hurricane season is below average, like it was last year. And, you know, if you remember last year by the 15th, 16th of August, we were, we were kind of done. <laughs> you know, we had, we had a tropical storm make a little bit of precipitation across Southwest right at September 1st. And then that was, that was effectively the last really kind of monsoon proper precipitation. And it, we got more precip at the end of September, but it was, it was really early fall kind of winter, quote unquote, even though it's hundred degrees out weather at that point. That precip at the end of September shook up the winners. From it the did. You, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Which we'll talk about right now, but I want to say one other thing, just a shout out to La Nina, since you mentioned it, something to keep an eye on uh, as we go forward. It is looking like we might get a triple dip La Nina, at least into the early part of the winter. So um, chances yeah. are, the forecasts are, are, are saying that that cold, those cold conditions in the East Pack are, are going to persist. So we'll have to keep an eye out on that. What about Fantasy Enso? Are we, are we gearing up? <laughs> No, but let's uh, let's pivot because this. So uh, hopefully we'll we'll still get the same kind of excitement from 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 people. But we had a lot of fun last year, turning the question on to to you all and asking, well, what do you think the monsoons are going to be like? And and uh, you know we set up this platform where you know across the Southwest you get to uh, put your forecasts for the months, each month, you do it ahead of that month and you accumulate points based on how accurate your forecast is with compared to observations at, at the airports in Tucson, Phoenix, Flagstaff, Albuquerque, and, and El Paso. You get to make your forecast at those, those five cities, accumulate points based on how accurate your forecast is compared uh, com- in comparison to observations. But you also score total points based on the riskiness of your forecast. So you've got to play those two levels. Like if if you go whole hog and if you were to bet like, oh, it's going to be, you know, eight inches of rainfall in July for Tucson, which nobody did last year. What was it last year? It was close to that, right? It was. Yeah. Yeah. You would have scored the maximum points that you can get um, because it was such an unlikely forecast. So you're you're playing with accuracy and uh, riskiness. So, yeah, so we're excited to, to see what you guys forecast. We got a couple cool, cool prizes. Like I said, at the beginning, a $400, uh, Amazon gift card for the winner, a 300 for the uh, second place and a 200 for the third place. We're not able, we're not going to, even if we win and Ben almost won last year, we're uh, um, ineligible. ineligible. This is new to me, so we'll just have to have this conversation offline. So, <laughs> well, you were pretty bad last year. So I was terrible. Yeah. One major change. There's one major change that we did, which is last year we made it so that you had to make your forecast a week prior to the start of the month, right? And we did that because 
we didn't want people looking at the, the forecast and the weather forecast. And then, you know, using that, figuring that into their, their, their monthly forecast. But we sort of got rid of that. And you can make your forecasts now up until basically the day, the, the, the turn of the day. So like you can make your, your, your forecast for July up until, you know, 1159 on, on June 30th and so forth for making your forecast for August and making it for, for September. So, oh, and one other thing I should say is in order to be, to qualify for the prizes, you have to play at least two months. So, so yeah, we're, we're just curious and, and have fun with it. And uh, last year, was really really interesting to talk with the winner who had just moved here from the Midwest and like I said everything changed on the last day as I think it was both Albuquerque and and El Paso got rainfall and uh, shook it all up so uh, so yeah I don't know Mike do you have a good time with that last year what do you think I did I mean it you know I'm gonna just go with climatology again this year is eventually if I play over time it'll work out for me <laughs> yeah, you got to play it over. You got to play it over 10 years. Um, exactly right. I don't know what my strategy is going to be, but I think I think my strategy is going to be I'm going to I'm going to hedge toward above in the beginning and uh, hedge toward below in in the latter months. That's my gut take, too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so monsoon fantasy forecast. Let's 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 run it back. Let's do it. Thanks, everybody, for for listening. And uh, we'll come back at you as soon as we can. Happy monsoon! Man, that's a lot of podcasts. Ben, if you just like cut out most of my babbling, we we can knock it down to an hour. Las Cruces, I think it, I think it is. I don't think it's El Paso. I think it's Las Cruces. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's El Paso. Ah, yeah. we were both wrong. So just say and El Paso in a natural way, and I'll splice it in. And El Paso, and El Paso, and, 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 and El Paso. Should I play the let's get ready to rumble one more time? Yeah. Let's get ready to rumble! So good. It is good. It is. <laughs>